Lord, today your people meet all over this country desiring to fellowship with one another and with you. And what a joy it is to be here in your presence with your people. I pray, Father, now that you would send your Spirit to do what he does. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, the Word of the Lord is. And where the Word of the Lord is, there the Spirit is also. And with the Spirit and the Word is power to change I praise you for that text I read this morning, this week in Jeremiah, that described your word as a fire and as a hammer. A fire, perhaps, to burn off the dross in my life, and a hammer to crush every idol in my heart. Oh God, send your word. Send your spirit and your word now to change us, to convict us, to transform us. May we lay ourselves open to the spirit's sway. May he bring the power of the gospel to plow up our hearts, to expose the sin, and then remind us that it's all already forgiven. Therefore, we can confess and repent. Give us a heart, Father, that desires to walk in the light, to have an open and honest attitude about what in us needs to change to be conformed a little more to the image of Christ. Only you can do that. And so we ask you to now by the power of your Spirit and in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. I hope you you feel... Um, the delight that it is to come away from the world once a week and to be here. And I'm not saying that Calvary Bible Church has anything exclusive. I don't know what's going on in any other church in the city because I don't go there. I'm not a member there. I'm not their pastor. I'll tell you what, I was sitting here this morning. This happens to me frequently. I'm just overwhelmed by the reality that I get to come here every Sunday morning and worship with my family, with you, with our spiritual family, the body of Christ. And I don't know about you, but all week long it's warfare. It's battling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we come here, and when we sing together, we are praying together, I hope. We're worshiping together as one And then we get to sit under the ministry of the Word. And I get to be under this Word, the Word that you're going to hear of again this morning. I get to sit under it like a hammer and like a fire all week long. And painful and wonderful and beautiful. This morning we're back in John 15. And... um, Verses 12 through 17. This is where we started last week, and by God's grace, we'll finish it this week and and then move on. Let's stand together and read this text. If you're new with us, this is immediately after Jesus' teaching on the vine and the branches, which I'll only mention briefly. But picking up on verse 12, this is John 15, verse 12. 
This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever I Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. As you know, we're kind of in an extended study of the upper room and farewell discourses, respectively. It all is kind of happening in, in the same, same time frame. Jesus and his men went to the upper room, they He washed the disciples' feet. They had the Lord's table for the first time ever. He teaches them. That's called the upper room discourse. And then he says, let's leave this place. They step outside the house. Uh, This is kind of his farewell discourse now we're into in chapter 15. And we're taking our time with this because there's so much deep, rich truth to mine out of this text, and it has such practical implications for our lives. I just didn't want to rush through this. And by way of review, I think it's important to be reminded that Jesus is speaking to his disciples about a life of future ministry, their lives of future ministry. His life was about to end, at least temporarily, but their life in ministry was about to begin. Jesus had called them to be his followers. They were about to get a new position. Now they would be his emissaries. Now they would go proclaiming the truth of of the saving gospel to the ends of the earth. But as we learned last week, the apostles would not accomplish their mission alone. Not Not even 11 of them. Well, plus Matthias or Matthias, however you pronounce that. And then with the addition of Paul, not even them all together could accomplish it. There had to be more. And Jesus called them to be his disciples so that they, so they were given the responsibility of what? They were given the responsibility of calling others to be Jesus' disciples. In fact, Jesus' final instruction to them, at least the Matthew 28 version of his final instruction of them, was that they go into all the world and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do or to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This passage before us this morning is extremely relevant to the modern church because the baton of ministry has been passed down from the apostles to generation after generation of generation of those who would believe. And in our time, it has been passed down to us. And when I say us, I don't mean me and Jason and Keith and Frank and Joe and Charlie. No, 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 no. I mean all of us. 
We all have different responsibilities. We have different gifts. We have different callings. But it's all the same in the sense that we are all called to take this commission and flesh it out in our lives relative to making other disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. It's our turn. It's our turn. It hasn't always been my turn. I wasn't the first pastor of this church. The church was founded in 1952. Or 1950, 52, they built this building that we are worshiping in now. And you know what? Uh, It was Howard Hendricks, and then it was Dr. Elliott for 32 years served here. And then it was Chris Creech, and then it was Jim Pittman. And that's when I came on. And then me. My point is, there were, there were men before me. Unless the Lord returns, there'll be men after me. There were in this church before you arrived. And there will be people here after you're gone, Lord willing. It's your turn. And it's mine. We're called to be faithful now. We're called to be making disciples faithfully now. We are those who are called to make disciples. And we will, as we'll soon see in chapter 17, Jesus was praying his high priestly prayer. And we'll, we'll get there. We'll get, we'll get there. <laughs> but in that prayer, in verse 18, he says this. He, okay, so he's praying to the Father. He's on the Mount of Olives. And he's in the dark, and he's praying to his Father so his men can hear him. And he says this to the Father. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. That's what it means to be a disciple. You're making other disciples. You're you're going into all of the world. As you go, you're going making disciples. Their mission, the mission that God gave them, the mission that Christ gave them, he has now given us. Their calling is our calling. As As Paul explains in Ephesians 4, we looked at this last week, He gave the church apostles and prophets and and, uh, evangelists and pastors and teachers for what purpose? For the equipping of the saints. For the equipping of the saints. Well, equipping for what? Well, equipping for the work of the ministry. Or the ESV, I think, says for the work of service. We are called to minister. And so you see, we're all ministers. All of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ are both called and equipped to be his emissaries in the world. Or to use Jesus' metaphor of the vine and the branches, we have been called to bear much fruit. And as we'll see, Jesus picks back up on that metaphor here in this section. Well, um, in this passage, as I said last week, I see several qualities of a fruitful follower of Christ. This is all about fruitfulness. It's all about fruitfulness. The whole point of the vine and the branches is that if you're a child of God, if you're a disciple of Christ, you're like a branch connected to a a, a life-giving vine. The, The vine is Jesus. The sap of the vine, we could say, is is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gives us, brings us the life. And we are the branches. We are the ones that God uses to bear fruit. That's why he created the vine in the first place. He created this 
this vineyard in the first place to bear fruit. We're at the end of the chain. We're the ones the fruit is born by or through whom the fruit is born. All of this is about bearing fruit. So how do, how do you become a fruitful believer? Or, or, or maybe, maybe not so much how to, but what does a fruitful believer look like? Or we could say it this way, what are the characteristics, or at least out of this passage, characteristics from what Jesus is teaching us here of a fruitful Christian. So, by way of review, let's, let's just kind of catch up to where we were last week, just briefly. Number one, fruitful Christians embrace the call to sacrificial love. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than one laid down his life for his friends. The point is, if you're going to be a fruitful Christian... The first thing you need to do is master, master loving other people. Become really bad at loving yourself and really good at loving other people. I mean, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard, as yourself. How much do you love yourself? You say, well, I have a poor self-esteem. Nonsense. (laughs) You don't. I'll prove it to you. Who brushed your teeth this morning? And you're going to say, well, I did. Uh, if you did, and I hope you did. And why did you do that? Well, I don't didn't want anybody to look down on me because I have bad breath or not be willing to talk to me. Oh, so you love yourself. Oh, I, okay, so when you go to the salad bar, who picks out whether you're going to have the fruit or the tomatoes or whatever? And if you, if you pick out of, who picks the best stuff out of the salad bar for you? Well, I do. Well, why do you do that? Why don't you look for the really ragged, you know, uh, uh, all wilted leaves and the old rotten tomatoes? I mean, if you hated yourself, you would do that. You love yourself whether you think you do or not. And the reason you're so uptight about your, whether or not other people esteem you is because you love yourself so much. And that's why throughout the word of God, it is this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Sacrifice for yourself. You sacrifice for yourself every day. There are things that you choose not to do because it's better for you not to do them than to do them. You love yourself. And so Jesus is saying, this is my commandment, that you love one another. But then now he doesn't say, as yourself, he says, as I loved you. Well, how did I love you? Well, how I'm going to lay down uh, to love you in verse 13. He's looking forward I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to lay it down. That's love. That's love. And Jesus demonstrated this kind of love for one another back in 13 when he washed the disciples' feet and told them, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Do what? Rank yourself under other people and serve them sacrificially as you were serving me. As if you were serving yourself. Find out what the need is and meet it. Put their interests ahead of your own. Be willing to lay your time, your money, your life down for them. In a world, listen, in a world where devotion to self is the highest virtue, loving other people sacrificially is a rare and wonderful spectacle to behold. 
When you love someone like that, you are communicating without words the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you communicate the gospel without words by loving other people, I guarantee from time to time, the door's gonna fly open for you to communicate the gospel with words. In any case, loving sacrificially is true love. It's the beginning of a fruitful ministry wherever you are, whoever you are. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a deacon. You don't have to be an elder. Just love people and look for opportunity to speak into their life, to bring them Jesus or whatever it is they need from Jesus. This is the beginning of fruitful ministry. And by the way, Jesus was the model of it, as is true of all of these cases. He didn't just tell the disciples to wash their feet. He washed their feet. He did it first, and ultimately, he died in their place. And so if you want to bear much fruit, follow the example of Jesus and become an expert at loving people. Number two, fruitful Christians commit to a life of faithful obedience. We see this in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. Now, we've spent a significant amount of time on this over the past few weeks, and so I'm not going to belabor the point, but it's important to understand that obedience to Christ is one of the primary marks of a true disciple. Now, I suspect there are people who are listening to my voice right now who are religious people but are not true disciples, and it's evidenced by that they kind of pick and choose what they're going to do that God says. In other words, I'm going to obey here, but look, I really love this area of my life, this sin in my life. I really love that. I'm not going to submit that to the Lord. That would be too painful. But I like going to church. He tells me to go to church. I'll go to church. I don't mind giving money. He tells me to give money. I'll give money. But over here where it really counts, and Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and you're not willing to do what I say? Or you could, you could turn that backwards and say, don't call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say. And that's the definition of lordship. There's no such thing as, a fruit, as fruitfulness apart from obedience to the word of God. And this is made clear even in the Great Commission, which defines true discipleship. Namely, a true disciple, those who are true disciples, are taught to obey all that I have commanded you. To obey all that I have commanded you. And once again, Jesus is our example in chapter 14, verse 31, look there. I mean, it's just a couple paragraphs back. 1431, Jesus says, So that the world may know that I love the Father. Okay, so what, what's he saying? I'm going to tell you how the world will know that I love the Father. There's something that I do that communicates to the world that I love the Father. And, and our question is, what is that? And he says, I do exactly what the Father commanded me to do. It's obedience obedience. And so here again, we learn that a disciple is one who learns to live just like their master. Jesus loved sacrificially, so we love sacrificially. Jesus obeyed his father, so we obey his father. And there's nothing legalistic about obedience, beloved. Stop that. If you think that, stop it. If you need help stopping Please ask. We'll help you to stop thinking of obedience as legalism. Obedience is not worship killing. It is worship inspiring. If it's done out of love for Christ and love for your neighbor as it should be, there's nothing legalistic about obedience. It's simply the way Jesus lived. That's the way Jesus lived. Was Jesus a legalist? <laughs> you will know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free. 
He is the truth. It's simply the way he lived and how we should live. So becoming a fruitful Christian means embracing the call to sacrificial love and committing to a walk of faithful obedience. Number three, fruitful Christians grow in the knowledge of their master's business. And we saw this in verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. There's a lot of confusion, I think, in... I mean, not that we think about it all the time as a Christian culture, but the songs come out, and they've made a lot of hay out of being a friend of Jesus. Um, and honestly, some of the songs that have been written about being a friend of Jesus um, are, are not consistent with what Jesus is teaching here or elsewhere. Um, uh, maybe Fanny Crosby's song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Not real sure about that. We just need to be discerning. We need to be careful. Jesus isn't our buddy-buddy. He's not our BFF, right? He is still Lord. And if we understand what it means that he's the king and we are his friends, then, then all of this makes sense. A friend here, the, the very term that's used here is friend of a king or emperor or a friend at court in the king's court. He refers to the inner circle around the king. We talked about this last week, but the friend of the king would be close enough to know his secret plans, and they would also be subject to him, having to obey his will. So yes, very, very close. The friends of the king, the inner circle, you think King Arthur and his round table, Sir Lancelot and all those guys, they were the friends of the king, but they were still his subjects. They knew him. They knew what he was up to. He, he disclosed his plans to them. And they were grateful to that, and they, that was a privileged relationship. Not everybody could be there at the table. Not everybody could be around the table with King David or King Solomon or even King Saul. The friends of the king could be close, but they weren't his buddy-buddy. They might lay down their life for him, but they would do that willingly as his subject. I was reminded this week of, a, of an incident that happened in the life of David. Remember, David's on the run. I think it was Absalom was chasing him. And he comes to Bethlehem, right? I mean, that's where David was born. You see parallel there with Jesus? <laughs> David was born in Bethlehem. It's called the city of David. Jerusalem's called the city of David too, so don't get confused. This was the city of David, uh, Bethlehem. And he's outside the city, and he's with his army. And he's looking at... He's looking at Bethlehem, and, and, he, and he says, Oh, just to have a drink of water from the well of that blessed place. And some of his, some of his mighty men heard him, and they snuck out of camp, and they broke through the enemy lines, and they risked their lives because David said, he wanted a little bit of water from a certain place. That's what it means to be the friend of a king. You lay it down. You have the privilege of being close to him and hearing everything that he has to disclose. And Jesus says, I've disclosed everything the Father has given to me. He is the king. We are his subjects. And oh, how we love to be his subjects. Amen? And this is what it means. And in the Old Testament, there were, only, um, there were only two characters whom God called friends, Abraham and Moses. 
And both of these men, God gave specific revelation that equipped them to go about and do his bidding. If you're a friend of the king, your desire is to serve him, to obey him, to please him, and when necessary, to lay down your life for him. And the difference between being a slave and being a friend is the fact that the king has revealed his plan. He's revealed his word. He's revealed his truth by his spirit. And that's what happened with Abraham and with Moses. The word of the Lord came to them. God is giving them revelation. He's giving them his truth. And then he's telling them what to do. Abraham, leave your country. Where am I going? None of your business. Just pack. Follow me. What about my friends and family? I'll take care of them. You just follow me. And so the Lord led him out of Ur, and into what would eventually be called the promised land. And God blessed him and multiplied everything that he had and told him that, you know, look up into the, into the sky, number the stars if you can, so shall your offspring be. And, and your offspring, your offspring, your seed, singular, Paul will say in Galatians, will be the blessing of God upon the whole earth, namely, a son of Abraham, distant son, Jesus Christ. As Jesus said to the men, his men on a different occasion, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. I've laid it out for you. And so it's incumbent upon them to actively grow knowledge of their master's business, and they did. And it is incumbent upon us to actively grow in the knowledge of our master's business, are we? And once again, we, we look no further than to Christ for our example. Even when he was a boy, we're told in Luke 2 that he continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him because Jesus was a real human being, a real man, real baby, real boy, real man. He had to grow. He had to learn. And he did. And he was diligent. He was diligent in his learning. So much so that when he got to the temple, you remember the whole temple scene when he was 12 and his parents lost him, and there he was in the temple, and it says he was asking questions, and he apparently was asked, answering questions. Because the text says the scholars were amazed at his answers. At 12, learning, growing. Children, your education is really, really, really important. And, and not just your liberal arts education, that's important too, but your education in the scriptures is so important. It's the most important subject you'll ever study. Study it now. Study it with all of your heart. Study the languages. If you get an opportunity to learn Latin or Greek or Hebrew, take it. Take it now before you get bound up with a wife and children. As wonderful as they are, now is your time of freedom. Learn and grow. Did I say something funny right there? <laughs> Listen, that's what Paul said. It's just so important for you. You won't have that freedom. You can't because your obligation will be to your family. Don't waste your childhood. Don't waste your teenage years. Read, grow, and learn, and most of all, learn about God. And now we come to verse 16, and we learn that 
Fruitful Christians rejoice that they are chosen to bear fruit. Chosen to bear fruit. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you, he may give it to you. And this is my command that you love one another. Jesus says this, I chose you. I was not chosen by you. I chose you. I was not chosen by you. Uh, This couldn't be any clearer, both in the Greek and in the English. Jesus is not mincing words. He doesn't have hidden meaning here. This was not the first time either that Jesus reminded his men that he was the one who initiated this relationship, a master disciple with them. John 6, verse 70, did I myself not choose you, the 12? John 13, 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. John 15, 19, which is verses yet to come. I chose you out of the world. Out of the whole world, I chose you. And Luke records for us the occasion, the very occasion When one night Jesus left all the people who was following him, he went to the mountain alone, he prayed all night, which was not his normal practice, but he prayed all night long, and in the next morning he revealed who his 12 would be. I chose you. I was not chosen by you. They did not choose him. He was the initiator, and they were the responders. And beloved, it's always that way. It's always that way. If there is any impulse in your heart to love Jesus Christ, if there's any impulse in your heart to place your faith in him, it is because he acted first, and all the glory goes to him. Leon Morris observes, we always tend to think that when it comes to a relationship with Jesus, the initiative is with us. Jesus now assures his followers that this is not the case. It was not they who chose him, as was normally the case when disciples attached themselves to a particular rabbi. Students the world over seek out teachers of their choice and attach themselves to him or her. But Jesus' disciples did not hold the initiative. On the contrary, it was he who chose them. And why is that important? And why is it important here? I'll tell you why it's important. I think... And John doesn't explain it, and so we have to deduce. Now, I happen to know what's coming next, the next passage, all about persecution. I mean, they're going into a major storm right now. They don't don't know what to expect. Jesus is going to be arrested that night. They don't expect that. We know that because they fell asleep in the garden uh, just before Judas arrives with all the soldiers. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know he's going to be dead um, before the end of the next day. But they know a storm's coming because he's revealing it. So why did Jesus remind them that he chose them? Well, perhaps it was because Jesus, knowing what a terrible trial they would soon be facing when in a few hours he would be arrested and led off to crucifixion, 
I mean, you just have to believe that after Jesus' death, when things seem any more bleak and helpless, they would begin to second-guess the wisdom of becoming a disciple of Jesus. Ever had moments like that? Why did I ever agree to be a pastor? (laughs) Why in the world did I ever leave home and move to Uganda? You guys have never had that question, have you? Cross your mind? No, never. Or, Damon, how come you're saying, no, never, and your wife is just smiling at me? (laughs) Look, there are days when because you're being faithful, you're suffering. And you start asking questions. I mean, good night. Did I miss the train on this? Did I make a wrong choice? Should I have just kept my distance from Jesus and followed him from afar like everybody else? Was following him worth the cost now that, he's been, now that we've been kicked out of the synagogue and branded as a scourge on society? Was I a fool to choose Jesus over my career, um, my ambitions, my livelihood, my family? There are going to be days, if you haven't experienced days like this, you will. When you'll wonder, is it, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Did I make a mistake in giving my life to Jesus? I'm trying to be a fruitful Christian. I'm trying to love other people, and I, and I get rebuffed by my relatives, my family. They hate me for being a Christian. I try to live obediently, but I get busted down for that. I mean, is it worth it? Why did I choose to follow Jesus? And Jesus is saying, oh, whoa, 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 here. No, no, no. Your perspective is all wrong. I'm not chosen by you. I chose you. And because I chose you, your questions are irrelevant. Those questions are irrelevant. Yes, you were suffering, but it's not because you made the wrong choice. You're suffering because I made the right choice. You are mine. And I told you from the beginning that this was going to be hard. I told you from the beginning you better count the cost. You are mine. I never promised you that it would be rosy and cheery and comfortable. I promised you that if you are going to live godly, you will face persecution. There will be people in your family, your neighborhood, and your job who will not love you for being faithful to Christ. They will hate you. They will hate you. And so forever get it out of your mind that you made the wrong choice. You didn't because the choice was ultimately not yours to make. I chose you. I am the king. And you are one of my friends. And you have all the privileges of access to me. And you need to use them. But you must also obey. You must be faithful to your king. And you will be abundantly blessed. And I will disclose myself to you in ways that few people know. I love this. This is why, one of the reasons why the doctrine of election is so precious to me. I don't know how you make it through the kind of horrific circumstances that some of you have experienced and told me about if you don't believe that he called me 
and he's in control of everything that comes at me. And he loves me. And he's all wise. So he knows what I should have. He's all powerful. So that he only gives me what I need. He chose us. This isn't just true of the 12. This is true of all of us who were disciples of Jesus. He chose us. And this is everywhere in the New Testament. Acts 1.24. When the apostles needed to replace Judas, they prayed, Lord, show us which one. They came down to the two, right? Show us which one of these two you have chosen. Acts 9.15. When Ananias was sent to Saul of Tarsus, you remember that? Everybody knew Saul of Tarsus was, was a murderous tyrant of a Pharisee. He was going around arresting Christians and throwing them in jail. And the Lord appears to Ananias, his faithful servant, and he says, Saul's been struck blind. He's in the house off of that street named Straight. And go to him. Go to him. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. I've chosen him. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 28, Paul is speaking of regular, everyday, ordinary believers like you and me when he writes this, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the things that are wise. And every time I read that, I say, praise God. <laughs> that was my only hope, is that somehow he would have an impulse to choose a fool. And he did. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Why? To shame the wise. He has, a, he has a reason. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not relative to social standing so that he might nullify the ones who are the elite. So that, here's the reason, so that no man may boast before God. For it is his doing that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to you your righteousness, your redemption, your justification, your sanctification, your life. God chose you. He chose you. And this is everywhere in the New Testament. In Ephesians 1, 4, just read Ephesians 1. It's all over the place. But just one verse out of there, regarding your salvation, Paul teaches that he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. You say, what does that mean and how can it be? And my answer is, I don't know and I don't know. Who has known the mind of the Lord? This is the deep end of the pool, folks. And I'm not pretending I understand it all. But I can tell you this, it's what the Word of God teaches. And it has been my comfort 10,000 times in this life. You know, over the years, um, being in pastoral ministry at this church, no pastor gets through ministry in their church without being attacked and without being um, hunted down. Praise the Lord, that it's not happening now and it hasn't happened in a long time. But you know what? By God's grace, I never felt like I needed to go back and make those people repent or change. 
or somehow justify myself in their eyes. And you know why? As much as it hurt, you know why? Because I believe this. I believe this. God chose me. He's given me the assignment that I have. My job is not to make everybody happy. My job is to please the Lord. In whatever I do, to be faithful to him, to be faithful and fruitful and please the Lord. And yes, when I blow it, when people get angry because I sin, that happens. And I'm not going to take a show of hands, but I know I've hurt some of you (laughs) along the way as well. God, give me the grace to repent of that and to restore those relationships. You know, I know there are some folks here who are here because that relationship has been restored. And it gives me confidence again and again that the safest and happiest place to be in all the world is right in the middle of the will of God. And the will of God for me right now is to be here. The will of God for you right now is to be here. You know how I know that? Because you are here. (laughs) And he is sovereign. And there is not one single maverick molecule in the universe. That is so hopeful. That is so comforting. When Chris's mother died a couple months ago, it was such a joyful time, and there were people who were just blown away by that. How can you be singing? How can there be joy? Are you kidding? <laughs> we believe this. Our theology matters. And Jesus is teaching us good theology. Um, where am I? Right, right in the center of God's will. Thank you, Dana. <laughs> That was a sovereign pause. (laughs) We're not into fatalism. But the doctrine of election does offer us ultimate security. If we belong to Jesus Christ, if his spirit is giving us life, causing us to bear fruit to the glory of God, it is not because we chose him, but because he chose us. He is the initiator in our salvation And that's why John can say in his first epistle, we loved God because he, what? First, there's an order. There's an order. He first loved us. He initiated first. We responded. God initiates the relationship by the sheer impulse of his grace and his love, and we respond to him in faith. That's that's how salvation happens all the time. Whether we are sensitive to those dynamics, or not, and usually not. We have to have revelation after the fact to explain to us what happened. And this God gives us through his word. And Jesus unveiling the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven to us. To us it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, as encouraging as the doctrine of election would be to the apostles later on, the truth that would bring them the most immediate encouragement would have been what came next. And Jesus said to them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. I appointed you. And this is why I say the friends with Jesus, this isn't BFF time. Hey, let's get together at Starbucks and have some coffee and we'll talk about nothing. It'll be so relaxing, you know. It'll just calm our souls. Oh, no, 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 no. If you're a friend of the king, 
when he talks to you, he has something to say. I appointed you. The word appoint means to set aside for a specific task or function. And it's important to understand that when the New Testament talks about our election, the point is usually not merely about our privilege, but, but about our purpose. Yes, there is privilege, but with the privileges comes purpose. God saves us not merely so that we can enjoy him forever, but so that we might also glorify him through active ministry, by serving. Listen, the friends of the king don't spend all their time around the table. Most of the time, they're out in the world doing their king's business. And so are we. You know, we gather around this table once a week here. And all week long, we're out doing his business, or we should be, right? We're here to do the king's business. And we see this all the way back in the book of Genesis when God chose Abraham out of all the people of the earth and he gave him a new name and promised to bless him. And yet, God's purpose was not merely Abraham's blessing. God chose him and appointed him to leave his home, to go to a far country he didn't know. God would use him to bring about the nation of Israel through whom all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. He had a mission not just a set of privileges. The set of privileges equipped him for the mission. And Jesus' message to his disciples is not merely that he had chosen them, but that he has appointed them to do something. He appointed or ordained them to go into the world and accomplish something that would bring his Father great glory. And what did Jesus have in mind? How would the disciples glorify God after Jesus' death and the resurrection? First of all, they would bear much fruit. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Interesting here, the word go. It's the word that you would expect to be in the Great Commission. And we always say it like this, go into the world, right? Go into the world and make disciples. And it sounds like an imperative. It sounds like an emphatic Go, you are sitting in your pew, now go. But that's not what Jesus says in the Great Commission. It's a participle. He says, as you are going, make disciples. But here it's not that way. It literally is. Go, get off your pew and get out in the world and do my bidding. There is much work to be done. There are many souls yet to come to Christ. The church is not full yet. The number of those who would believe has not come to finality. We are to go and bear much fruit. And here Jesus draws upon that metaphor he just offered them of the vine and the branches. Again, Jesus is the life-giving vine. His disciples are the branches through whom God would produce much fruit. And through their ministry, consider this fruit. Through their ministry of the gospel, many would come to believe in Jesus and find eternal life in him. And through their ministry, churches would be planted all over the known world. So, so many, in fact, even in his time, 
seems ludicrous that Paul would say this, but as he's writing to Rome, he says, um, I, am, I have to leave uh, Asia because there's no room for me uh, to do my ministry. Really? I mean, look at the acreage. Look at the cities and towns. No, but they had, not, they had enough churches planted that it was time for him to go somewhere else. He was a church planter. And so he did. He went to Rome and, and maybe made it to Spain. I don't know. Through their service, many would, become, would begin to comprehend the deep, rich truths of Scripture as they were intended to be understood from the beginning. This is all bearing fruit. And through their ministry, evil in the world would be overthrown. That's how Rome was overthrown. It was primarily the gospel. Through their ministry, much evil would be overthrown. And through their ministry, judgment would fall upon those who hate and reject the Messiah. And through their ministry, the works of Jesus would be multiplied exponentially, and the disciples by the millions would be equipped with the word of God in order to train others to be faithful to follow Christ as well. And we're in the middle of all of that. Or maybe we're at the end of it all. I mean, last days. Last days started, you know, when, uh, when Pentecost happened. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. Jesus called and appointed these men to bear much fruit. We don't know how much time we have left. We just don't know. But if you're breathing in and out, you can bear fruit for God. I remember my wife when she had that, that horrible surgery on her back, partial discectomy first, and that failed shortly thereafter, which often happens, and had to have that, those titanium rods put in her back. Um, it's not often she bends down to pick something up because her back doesn't do this like yours and mine do. But she was crippled for a long time, and I remember her laying in bed and women would come and she'd say, pull up a chair. And she would counsel from bed. I'll never forget that. Bear fruit in her pain. I love that woman. <laughs> you young men, find a girl like that. Marry her. Just marry her. Well, maybe you need to think about some other things too, but. <laughs> <laughs> this had to be a profound encouragement to Jesus' men as they were beginning to face the terrible storm of Jesus' arrest and condemnation and crucifixion. And all this talk about being chosen and appointed to bear much fruit could only have meant that whatever was going to happen to Jesus was not going to be the end of their ministry. There was more to come. They were going to do greater works than Jesus. That's what Jesus had said just a chapter earlier. He chose them and appointed them you, and, and it's if, as if Jesus is saying, and that appointment has hardly even begun. All your, your ministry, you've been in training for three years. Training, training, training. You're about to be thrown out of the nest. Literally, driven out of the nest. There was much more to come after he had offered himself as the once for all sacrifice for sin. Now they would go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And we are the beneficiaries of that ministry. And so Jesus chose them and appointed them to bear much fruit. And by the way, if Jesus appointed us to bear fruit, then we will bear fruit. 
And that's another hopeful message here. Go, emphatic, imperative, go. I have chosen you and appointed you that you will go and bear fruit. And there isn't anything that I intend to do that doesn't come to the appropriate and desired conclusion. If you have been chosen to bear fruit, you will bear fruit. Maybe not as much as you want, and maybe not in the ways that you wish, but you will bear fruit, and you will bear much fruit if you're abiding in Christ. You will bear much fruit. I don't know what this does to you, but you know what it's done to me just in the study over this last month? Am I bearing I mean, I, there's fruit in my life. Nobody could accuse me of not being a Christian. There's, I mean, there's enough evidence to demonstrate that I'm a follower of Christ. But am I bearing much fruit? Am I at full capacity in terms of fruit bearing? Or are there areas in my life where I'm still harboring idols, hardness of heart, unwillingness to submit to my master's direction? They would bear fruit. Implicit in that statement is a declaration, you will bear fruit. Just as in the life of Jesus. Jesus bore much fruit. I mean, we we can agree on that, right? Jesus bore much fruit. But Jesus says, true. But you would do greater works than I. But it wasn't as if Jesus expected them to bear fruit of their own wits and wisdom, their own power, their own intellect, their own strategizing. We know that because Jesus had already said in 15 verse 5, that famous verse, apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. And oh, how much nothing we do. And how much nothing the American church does. Bearing fruit doesn't happen merely as a consequence of hard work. Rather, fruit that remains is brought by the Spirit of God through prayer. You say, where do you get that? That's a really good question. Let's keep reading. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Whatever you ask, he may give to you. It's certainly not necessary for me to say that prayer is essential to a believer's fruitfulness, but just in case. Prayer is essential to the believer's fruitfulness. And this is more of a sub-point in this passage than a main point. But we could easily add this to the list of characteristics of Christians who bear fruit So you can add this as your last one, namely that fruitful Christians remember that fruit bearing is dependent upon prayer. And one might also argue from Jesus' teaching here that no prayer, no fruit. The fact that the Lord repeats this promise, the promise of verse 7, whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give you. He repeats it here. This only emphasizes the essential link between prayer and fruitfulness, prayer and evangelism. 
prayer and fruitfulness of any kind. And show me a Christian whose life and ministry is abundantly fruitful, and I will show you a Christian who's devoted to prayer. And once again, Jesus is our model. He would often get up early and be alone with the Father to entreat him in prayer. If he needed to pray, I mean, come on. If he needed to pray, I need to pray. I mean, I need to spend the first, first part of my prayer time doing something that Jesus never had to do, and that is confession of sin. Jesus never had to do that. But he would spend, apparently, he would spend hours and a few times all night long talking to the Father. Well, we could belabor this point, and we've talked about prayer an awful lot. I guess my question is, are you a fruitful believer? And if you're not, and you're wondering why not, do you pray? Or, you know, we've come down here to the end. And just to refresh here, these are just some of the primary characteristics of a believer um, who bears much fruit. And first, they embrace the call to sacrificial love. And they commit to a life of faithful obedience. And again, we, we spent some time last week talking about not perfection. This isn't perfection. Even the Apostle Paul said, it's not as though I've attained or have become perfect, but I press on. Embracing sacrificial love, faithful obedience, they continually grow in the knowledge of their master's business. They rejoice in knowing that they are chosen to bear fruit. And lastly, they remember that fruit bearing is dependent on prayer. So what are the characteristics of your life, my fellow disciples? Do you joyfully sacrifice to meet the needs of others? You see someone in need, it's your first impulse is, I should stop, I should help, I should call, I should write, I should sign up. Do you love people? Do you strive for greater obedience to Christ? Is that an issue for you? Do you strive for greater obedience to Christ? Do you know that there's some areas in your life that really need to change and you've tried to change and you can't change? Are you praying about those things? Are you actively pursuing it? Who have you invited into your life to help you with that? You don't have to do it alone, and you shouldn't. Do you strive for greater obedience to Christ? Are you growing in your understanding of the word? Or are you just checking off your Bible reading in the morning? Or maybe not reading at all? And are you comforted by the fact that God has chosen you and sent you into ministry to the church and to the world? And is your life marked by dependent prayer? These are some of the characteristics of a fruitful Christian. So, the appropriate thing to do now is to look at your life and say, hmm, how fruitful am I? How spiritually fruitful am I? How useful am I to the master? If I could look over the back, uh, back over the last year, how much fruit has been born? Can I, can I identify any? And, and there will be a lot probably that you'll find in heaven that you didn't even know about, granted, but is there really verifiable fruit in your life? Is there much fruit? Jesus repeats that twice in Divine and the Branches. 
a metaphor. Much fruit. Can you look back and say, there is much fruit being born in my life. The saints are encouraged. The needy are being helped. The lost are at least hearing the gospel. Is there much fruit? If not, then ask yourself these questions. Am I loving people? Just go through. Am I loving people? Am I being faithful to obey? Am I playing fast and loose with sin? That would be the other side of that one. Am I growing in my knowledge of that master's business through his word? You rejoice that God has called you to bear fruit and you're, are you remembering that fruit bearing is dependent upon prayer? Are you a praying disciple? The disciples needed to know all of this. They needed to know all of it. You know why? Because... Um, once they got through this really difficult trial with Jesus being arrested and being killed, and then the resurrection, there's a period of glorious communion and growth in the church, and then the persecution. Then the persecution. You want to know how they were persecuted? You want to know what Jesus' instructions were for how to handle persecution? Got to come next week. I will tell you in advance that next week is Vision Sunday. Now, for you visitors, don't freak out. We're not going to have a class on how to have a vision. No, this is vision casting. This is time for us. Once a year, uh, the elders give me a week to talk about um, what God has done, fruitfulness in the church, and where we believe God is leading. This year is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to talk about where we are as a church in America relative to what is happening in our country and how we are called to respond. And when I, when I concluded that that's what would be pleasing to the Lord for, for that particular Sunday, I thought, I'm going to need some time to prepare for this. I need to ask Keith to preach for me, to fill in the gap after I finish this passage, to fill in the gap before the date when I'm supposed to preach because I'm going to need some time, and I want to prepare. And then I looked at the schedule and realized I had today's sermon, and the next week I'm on. And the next week, the text is about persecution. I believe in the sovereignty of God. <laughs> I don't have to look for a text. The Lord's just been waiting for me to get here, and the timing is perfect. And I just want to talk to you about those things next week. It'll be encouraging and sobering and discreet. I know a lot of you parents, all of you care about that for your children. I will be discreet. But we need to hear these things. And we need to prepare ourselves for how God wants us to respond in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you. You have not left us as orphans. You have sent us your Holy Spirit. And you have given us your word. You've made known to us the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And you have made us your friends. You are our king and we are your subjects. We are, <laughs> it's a really big circle, but we are that inner circle. All of us who know Christ, whether in Fort Worth or Tajikistan or Iran, we all are friends of yours. And as your friends, we've been called and appointed to ministry.
May we be found faithful this week in discharging our responsibilities for your great glory and for our own great joy, we pray it in Jesus' name.